Okay. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I'm Jan Masoka. I'm the moderator for this session, and uh, I want to introduce our panelists. Um, so, but let me just start by saying that it's Friday afternoon, and um, uh, we could, you know, um, so we know that we are committed, <laughs> right? All right, so we're going to kind of celebrate that in solidarity of our mutual commitment to our work. So I just want we have these fabulous panelists that have been recruited by the Center for Nonprofit Management. All right, so let me just tell you who um, the Center for Nonprofit Management has uh, asked to come here today uh, and join me on this very interesting discussion. And so one is Lisa Watson, who's here. She's the longtime head of the Downtown Women's Center. She's been the executive there for 14 years. Um, and uh, kind of a legend in her own time, right? Something like that, okay? Um, uh, <laughs> right. Then there's um, Mark Larringer from Chrysalis, and I think Chrysalis is, everybody knows what Chrysalis is, um, but they have kind of an interesting, unique model around uh, business systems and social enterprise, and so it's great to hear kind of directly from him. Then we have two people who are associated with the new health center at General Hospital, Beatrice Solis from the California Endowment, um, and Steve Reyes from Supervisor Molina's office. And the two of them, I think this is an, as you all know, this is a very unusual project, kind of a uh, very unique project in many ways, and so it's great that we have two perspectives to look at from that. Uh, so I just wanted to make a, just a couple of opening comments about the topic of business models, um, which is kind of the idea that we should all be reinventing our business models these days. And one of the things is, as Robert Edgar mentioned today, it's not just us. Everybody's reinventing their business models. You know, community colleges are trying, are setting up foundations. Um, actually, I recently ran into um, the Crescent's, the, the housing, the Crescent City Housing Authority Foundation. Okay, which is a government agency that's now decided to set up a foundation to solicit um, philanthropic funds. And, of course, I felt like they need a different name, but, you know... Uh, um but governments are looking for philanthropic funds and for earned income in a different way. For-profit organizations are looking for reinventing their business models. And it's not just small nonprofits, right? We see the drama of big for-profit for companies, Fortune 500 companies, kind of trying to reinvent their business models every day. And some of them are really successful, and some of them kind of crash in a big, big way. So... Um, one of the biggest innovations that I think has swept the world recently is the idea of where you can go to a salad, to a deli, and instead of just getting one salad, you can get three salads on the same plate for only like a dollar more. You know that idea? So you don't have to be sitting there, do I want the kale salad or do I want, you know, you can get to pick three. And so I want you to think of that as this is our salad bowl, okay? We have our salad bar. We have like three great salads, um, and, but you're not going to get a whole lot of any one of them, all right? Because so we're just going to kind of zip through them. Um, and what you are going to do is, though, I think you're going to get a chance to sort of have your mind sparked in a more creative way than it might be if you didn't have exposures to these different kinds uh, of ideas. I also want to say, though, that one of the hardest things about business models is what works for somebody else won't work for you. And so an example from that is in the Bay Area where I live, there's a, a school for children with disabilities. And every year it has this fantastic rock benefit. You know, they have like Neil Young and Melissa Ethelridge and Huey Lewis and, you know, these fantastic, and they make just a ton of money. And every other school for children with disabilities in the Bay Area is always thinking, you know, maybe we should be having a rock benefit. Look at how great they are. Well, the reason why that school is so successful is because it was founded by Neil Young's wife. 
Right, so it's a really great business model for schools founded by rock stars' wives. Right? Okay, so as you hear these different models, one of the things to think about is partly that's so interesting, but it's also partly to think, I wonder what elements of that I can take from us. Because So part of what I'm going to kind of push you guys on is not just the cool stuff you're doing, but what about your organizations and efforts before that made it possible so to, to be kind of extra helpful to people. All right. And I've also asked our panelists to, um, you know, kick off their shoes. It's Friday to interrupt each other and uh, disagree with each other because I think that will make it even more fun, especially if they, like, throw water in each other's faces or something like that. And I am going to start with some questions to start, but then we're going to have time for audience questions. So please be thinking about your questions as we go on. Okay. So, Mark, let's start with you. So when people hear the term business model, they tend to think, Social enterprise that earns income. All right, so can you just tell us quickly about how Chrysalis got into this business and what about it? What about Chrysalis before that made this a good decision? Sure. Um, so first of all, I'm wearing socks. So if I take my shoes off, I guess that's okay. Um, so we have two social enterprises that produce a significant amount of earned revenue for us. Um, we have a professional street cleaning and maintenance business that works with business improvement districts. We have a staffing company that provides temporary staffing uh, solutions primarily to affordable housing providers. And those two businesses together are about $6.5 million in revenue. Uh, we make 8% margin thereabouts on it. So you can see they're profitable businesses, and that half a million or so that it kicks back to our program then helps reduce the 4 to $5 million a year mm -hmm. that we have to raise other, other ways. But those businesses um, have been going for 20 years. I've been there seven years when I arrived, and the reason I came was because the businesses were not doing well. Revenue-wise, they were fine, but they were sinking the organization. We were moving, losing money. They weren't being operated effectively, and our customer service sucked. And so as a result, although the whole point of the businesses are to create transitional job opportunities for our clients, that's the whole point of doing them, you can't do that if you aren't able to balance a budget, if you aren't able to run a business mm -hmm. in a competitive environment, which is the, the sectors that we've chosen to enter. So I, I guess for us, it's been a learning experience of how do you balance business and mission? How do you make sure you're creating the job opportunities that we're trying to do for the clients we serve, but then have enough of those job opportunities that it even makes sense from a scale and scope standpoint to do it, uh, and that we have enough money to meet payroll every week. It's, it's not an easy thing like any business has to make that balance. And when you add in the layers of managing a nonprofit and dealing uh -huh. with the clients that we try to serve, it's it's really tough to do. So are you, am I right in sort of that inferring to some degree that then why things weren't going so well is because they were not managing the, that balance and they were neglecting the business side for the mission side? Or was it I, more complicated than that? Or? There were a lot of factors, but I think the, the biggest ones are the ones you just highlighted is that we were so focused on the business, we lost sight of the, or excuse me, so focused on the program side, we lost focus of the business side. Uh -huh. And just fundamental things that you need to keep customers happy or they'll hire somebody else. There was a sense that, well, no one's ever going to fire Chrysalis. I mean, we, we hire the homeless. Who would fire us? Well, it happened. And uh -huh. the day that I had to lay off 50 of our client workers was the day I decided we needed to change something because I never wanted to have that conversation again. Great. And so when the pe so I know you weren't there then, but when the people were thinking about starting this, what what were the reasons why they thought this would work and maybe what risks they thought they were taking at the time? So looking at the folklore and the history, we got into these businesses purely by luck. It was 100% opportunistic. Um, 20 years ago, business improvement districts were just starting to be mm. formed in the downtown community. There were two that were forming. 
And the leaders that set it up said, hey, why wouldn't we want to hire folks from the neighborhood to help do the sweeping, graffiti removal, and that kind of stuff? And we happened to be in the right place at the right time, and the leadership at the time jumped on it and made it happen. So it wasn't like we had some master plan and paid a consultant a lot of money to come in to develop a business model to penetrate a market. It was There was an opportunity. We jumped on it, and thank goodness we did. And now we've got that market locked up in Los Angeles. But uh, it, it was very lucky that we did that when we did. That I, that's a great story. I mean, it also reminds me sort of of one definition is of luck, which is sort of the the uh, the unexpected intersection between preparation and opportunity. Yeah, so the opportunity is there, but you also were ready to take it. So thank you very much for that. And so um, let's, you know, has everybody here heard about the health center at General Hospital? Probably at least something, right? So um, can we just ask, um, let's uh, let's start with Steve. You know, how did this kind of start, get started, and in, in particular, from a government perspective, right? What was Supervisor Molina's thinking when she thought about this? So, uh, can you move your mic a little closer to yourself so people can hear you? Thank you. Well, I don't want to get wet when Mark throws. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the Wellness Center, for, for those of you who don't know, what it is is a uh, pretty innovative approach to uh, providing and delivering health care, preventative uh, care services to vulnerable communities. And what it is is a a collaboration of the Wellness Center with the California Endowment and about 16 national and local nonprofit organizations that are providing services to uh, the community. And it's located at the first floor of the General Hospital. And so they're all co-located there. Um, and we're really trying to address uh, some of the chronic health conditions that exist in our community that we're all familiar with, that the endowment has so... Um, uh, Articulated these these uh, these health disparities through some of the recent campaigns that we've seen um, in light of the uh, ACA, and so so that's that's what it is. And and before I get into much detail, um, I think it what this started. You know, I was I was around a little bit after it started, but the super supervisor Molina um, had this vision of bringing in some of the national organizations to to the east side and and bringing some of that expertise and knowledge to to have concrete benefits in the community and I think there was a perfect storm with with that plus um, the great partnership and leadership of the endowment as well as the changes that were coming uh, through through uh, the Affordable Care Act. And so that kind of combination made this ripe for this idea that she had had for many years to kind of take root and, and start to flourish. Okay, but so that idea of bringing health services to the neighborhood, that's not new, right? That's been around forever. So what was the unique circumstances or opportunity that happened at this particular time? I understand the word concrete is part of that. <laughs> so, so yeah, well, let's see. So there's there's a couple of things here. There's well, let me talk in terms of the concrete of the building itself. Well, yes, so we that's had, what I mean. I'm getting <laughs> mean the metaphorical concrete. We have a huge 19-story, I think it's 19-story, one million square foot building sitting there. That's kind of the icon of of and landmark in this this uh, county and, and certainly the community. And it had as the uh, the it got shut down and decommissioned as a hospital, and the LAC USC Med Center was open. It always been kind of uh, trying to figure out how can we use this. I mean, it's very, you know, it can withstand probably nuclear blasts. It's it's built so strong, so demolishing it was out of the question. The supervisor really wanted to bring some of 
uh, repurpose the the uh, the building to provide some community use, and so so that combination of factors. I mean, look, look, there's uh, a million square feet of space there. Right now, we're only using about forty five thousand square feet of it, and certainly there's opportunities down the line to to repurpose and and reuse more of that uh-huh. space. So I think that kind of that was one of the other additional factors that created this perfect storm environment to let this let this you know take root and flourish um, one other kind of little interesting point on this is is that it's not just putting putting uh, nonprofit organizations and into the building and saying okay do your do your thing what we're doing is we want to want to have these organizations these nonprofits work collaboratively together to coordinate with each other to talk to each other all for the purpose of trying to develop uh, meaningful plans and and uh, uh, care plans for individuals to make really lasting changes in their behavior so we might have the heart association who is um, working with somebody with hypertension um, but they may also have some uh, uh, legal needs because they're and of course, if you don't have a home, you know your odds of exercising and and taking care of yourself are going to be greatly diminished. And so we're looking at the full person and the expertise that all of these organizations bring to, to right. make this change. Thanks. So, so Beatrice, what? How did the California Endowment and you, in particular, um, what was your role on this? I mean, why couldn't Supervisor Molina have just gotten it done? Darn it! Well, I think she tried. I think that's what Steve is saying. She tried to do it, mm-hmm. and, and it wasn't going anywhere. And so our frame was, um, you know, we're all into how do you repurpose space and how do you animate it in a way that actually makes sense to real people out in the community. Mm-hmm. So from that simple perspective, the supervisor said, hey, you guys are doing something in Boyle Heights. Um, that's one of our Building Healthy Communities sites. We have 14 sites across the state. And we've made a 10-year commitment to this uh, place-based philanthropy. So she was like, hey, something's happening there. People are animated. There's uh-huh. um, a lot of community groups coming together that are working on really hard issues of gentrification, displacement, housing, um, access to health care, environmental justice, yada, yada, yada. You get the picture. Um how do we leverage those relationships that you've developed and and got people to actually work together? Because mm-hmm. again, um, as Steve said, you know we all tend to kind of work in our silos sometimes. So how do you how do you change uh, the operating system in a community mm-hmm. so that people see their place and space at the time to make the change? Because no one. No one organization, no one person can actually like inflict the change and transform community really takes Uh a bigger picture. And so they were like, okay, we think you guys are getting there. You have something there. How do we leverage that for this big Uh investment? And we said, absolutely wonderful. We're, we love that. We, a presentation was made to the community groups and they totally were on board. And so the wonderful thing was that the supervisor was completely, utterly open. You know, she had her ideas, but we said, hold on a second. Community has to have a voice and a stake at this. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And so uh, the community groups brought their folks together and said, okay, let's kick the tires on this idea. Mm -hmm. Let's figure out what do we actually want? What kind of services do we need that will really help improve our health. And again, what we learned about health is more than going to a doctor, right? And the perfect storm was ACA. 
you know, county services, they have to be much more efficient. They got to keep people out of the ER. There's a lot of financial incentive to keep people healthy. But a health system like the county is not going to give you, uh, you know, a card to LA Fitness. They're not going to give you, you know, the needed support that you may need with a nutritionist. They're not going to deal with, you know, the stress levels of your child, you know, getting pushed out of school or, you know, your, um, your, your apartment is going to be demolished and where are you going to live? Cause you don't have any discretionary income. So there are other factors that impact health. And so community basically mm-hmm. said, yeah, you know what, we need these other things that are going to actually help us to make us healthy. So medical legal partnership, the YMCA, and some so of the, the national endowment groups. put money into this as well as leadership help? We did. We did. We helped with data and research because we felt, you know, this is mm-hmm. something that the Canadians have done pretty well. Um, there are other places across the country. There's stuff going on in Europe around a movement on repurposing space mm-hmm. and using hubs that, mm-hmm. as, a, as mm-hmm. a way to kind of connect for community change and transformation. So we went down this path of learning um, and learning as a mm-hmm. group as to how to do this better. Um, okay, so you've sold me on the idea of having people in a gigantic concrete building and Boyle Heights is fabulous. Okay, for health reasons, for health, but sell me on why it's a business model. Why are you guys on this panel anyway? Again, because, <laughs> so, ACA, it's, it's, it's huge. I mean, the uh, we looked at economic indicators uh, across the state of California and just looked at where the jobs are going, right? So if you if you look at it from a workforce perspective, the healthcare system in California needs culturally competent, linguistically appropriate populations to work in the health system, period. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you just, for health disparities, et cetera. So there has to be a pipeline of job opportunities. So work, which is one of the groups that's in the wellness uh-huh. center, works with the county to get people with what we call lived experience, or you can call them promotoras, you can call them community health workers, as a way to get trained to get jobs in the health system, right? But- and then you also have, if there is benefit in reducing hospital visits, right? Uh-huh. So if the county is able to, let's say, reduce visits to the ER for right. diabetes or for asthma, which is a huge problem in the area, um, how can those cost savings then get translated into supports for the wellness center? And so that's where the experiment is. How does how do those then that cost savings get shifted? Um, right, so that's sort of the, the economic premise then is that the cost savings will result there. And I mean, as you know, prevention costs are always notoriously hard to measure. So a friend of mine used to work for a child assault organization and, and I used to love teasing him by saying things like, so hey, Rich, how many kidnappings did you guys prevent last month again? And, uh, because every kidnapping costs about $10 million. So they should be getting $10 million a month. Don't you think so? Um, but so I have one more question before we go on to Lisa. So do nonprofits in the health center pay rent? No. No, they don't. Okay, so a great part of the business model for them is free rent. All right, so. Rent, and uh, the place was completely renovated, and they had no costs Mm -hmm. um, for that renovation. We, at the endowment, supported Zero Divide to go in to help them think about, you know, what is the wiring, what kind of IT needs, because it is an old Uh building with old bones, and 
you know, wireless. Mm-hmm. And so just one more. So why didn't you think to just sort of contract the whole thing out to one org- to one nonprofit organization instead of kind of putting this group together yourselves? I think mm-hmm. the hardwired part was uh, for community transformation to happen. You got to involve more people. Yeah. You know, you really mm-hmm. have to set up a collaborative table. It's messy. It's harder. All of that. But at the end of the day, it's totally worth it because people buy into it mm-hmm. and they feel they have voice and license and, you know, beyond, you know, three to five years. This is, yeah, you know, much longer than that. Thanks a lot. All right. So, Lisa, you kind of have a different business model tweak, than, right, than this kind of stuff. And so, um, and you've really become a national model in so many ways around volunteerism. So can you just tell a little bit about what's your, the sort of the volunteerism and how that fits into your program thinking as well as your business thinking? So, um, first of all, I think that building the social relationships in any organization is really what makes us most successful, right? So whether it's building those relationships with your donors, your funders, um, your people that you collaborate with, it's really about building the social impact. And so when I started at the center, um, we started in 78 by an amazing founder. And I have to be honest, I had like the best Rolodex, like but Tina Chandler was my founding board president at the time. Otis owned the LA Times. Wallace Annenberg was a great friend of the center and a personal friend of Bettina's and all of her friends. So Barbara and Gary Marshall. So I came with, I was hired with a great Rolodex. But what I realized quickly is that all of them had been volunteers and got invested in the center as a volunteer first. And they had this belief it didn't matter how much money you were going to give unless you could serve a meal. We didn't want your money. And it really built this strong pool of um, organizations and individuals. But now I'm starting, and it's many years later. And Can I just make sure I understand this? So you said basically you can't donate unless you're a volunteer. Right. Basically, I, that was their, that was the belief system within the that's organization. That's such a powerful idea. Yeah. And so, I'm not sure very many of us are willing to go right there, but yeah, uh, it's a very powerful idea. Thank you. Okay. But it also gave, because people could come and serve a meal and see what mm-hmm. we were doing, it also made it so much easier to give the money, right? Because we had something, you could see the work on the ground being done, and so you're much more likely to give when you know, you're witnessing the experience when someone said they could meet with a scientist or at lunch today. But when you can meet with a homeless woman and have a conversation with her, help and serve a meal, you feel a level of um, connection and and a level of a desire to give back. The other belief really was that homelessness could not be solved by the government. It had to be solved by the community. And so we never, for the first, I guess, 20 years, um, for the first seven years I was there, we never took a penny from the government. And that was because that was the strong belief that everything needed to be done and it could be done. And our founder was a volunteer for her first 14 years. They put money into retirement, but that was it. So she she had the resources um, to be able to do that. But it really was this belief that it takes a community to solve this intractable problem. And as a community, we can do that together. Uh-huh. Um, and so, which was, you know, in, until we built this brand new site and needed $26 million to build and had a huge increase in homeless women, and now we're serving about 4,000 women a year, um, we could do that without government dollars. Now about 20% of our income, so most of our housing is paid for uh, with sub- government subsidies. But the, um, the idea of what I really loved about it is how do we continue to 
go grow and engage volunteers. Last year, we got the Governor Award um, for, on volunteerism because we serve, we have a little over 4,000 volunteers. But I do that with a large staff, so let me be honest with that. I have nine people in what's called my DEVO program. That's my development, engage, development engagement volunteer something, opportunities. I don't even know. <laughs> we have all these long names at my organization. I don't even know what they mean, but my DEVO group. So we don't do this like we really We spend a lot of resources in our volunteer program. But what it means is, though, about 85% of our volunteers give back financially, and it also means that about $1 million last year, I think it was 995000 of the in-kind goods that went to our women were donated. That was the value of the donations that were given to the center by the women. Most all my, like, any policy issues, all my legal services are for free. Um, and so we don't, we have a team of 70 people, so we have quite a big staff. Um, but we have also 119 units. We have a health clinic. We have two social enterprises. I mean, we're, we're a large organization that can accommodate this amount of volunteers. But we also started a few years ago charging our volunteers to volunteer, too. Um, so, um, Tell us I more mean, about that. We don't charge for our internships. I mean, we have about 20 interns a year, and we have individual volunteers that help us. But we do charge business organizations um, to come in, make lunch, and serve lunch the next day. And what we found was that, because it does take resources, right? We have to have a staff, we have to work with them, plan a menu, help to organize, set up the time, <clears throat> be there to give them a tour. And so we were investing a lot of time and we were like, wait a minute, people are willing to pay for the food. And so what we'll do is we'll ask, if you want to volunteer here, one meal costs us about, with the staff support, about $500. So you come in, you give us $500, we, you cook a meal for 100, 200 people um, as a team. We give you a tour of the agency, talk to you about homelessness, and then those people become our kind of our, uh, our people, in, our ambassadors in the community. And that's what's most important to us because that's how we've been mm -hmm. able to build our name and reputation. So a, a lot of, of homeless serving and other kinds of organizations have tried to sell, to charge businesses for that kind of volunteer opportunity, and which are from the business side of things that are PR as well as team building and that kind of stuff, employee development. And they failed. Why have you succeeded at it? I think it's really, so if we want to like develop a relationship, for example, with Bank of America, so we want Bank of America to support our dinner. We want Bank of America to give us volunteers to serve lunch. We want to get them one person on our board of directors. We want to help them to market the products we make for our store at any events that they have. And so we think of all these various opportunities. Now, what we do for them is we give their employees a great experience. We show up on their television news ads, and they get to talk about us and promote us um, on the radio and TV ads. And um, so we just really try to integrate a whole experience and how we can build the relationship. So from every business that we begin to work with, we begin a relationship with a strategy. And we go about the strategy on every level of building that. Do you have any suggestions of, suppose you're a smaller organization with not the kind of prestige and reputation that you have. I mean, how would you go about doing something like that from that circumstance? Well, when I started, we didn't have a volunteer coordinator, and a lot of our volunteers were elderly now mm -hmm. and leaving, so we really had to, and I had about a $450,000 budget at the time, so now we're a little bit over $5 million. But um, it really was about hiring my first volunteer 
coordinator. I think the California Wellness Foundation hired that person, and they actually came up with the cooking club idea. So we really started with one one volunteer coordinator and really recruiting and getting more volunteers involved. And then as that success grew, that's great. um, Really grew. Great. So let me just ask a question that, you know, any or all of you can can talk about. So you've done, we, we, panels like this tend to talk about successes, right? You hardly ever have a panel. Here's, you know, four people that have completely failed at something. Um, but so I'm guessing, right, in order to find your way to these successes, either before or after, there must have been things that you tried or thought about trying that kind of didn't work out. So anything like that you can tell us, because that can be also very, just as instructive in some ways, maybe. Are you guys just a hundred percent successes all the time? What of many is to share? Funders are in the room. <laughs> so I'll, I'll great. Go first. Thank you. So we've got these two social enterprises. They're fairly sizable. Um, two hundred twenty people that are, are employed in them, and that's great. But there's always more demand. We always need more slots, and so. In the seven years I've been there, we've investigated six or seven different business models that, in theory, would allow us to expand those businesses, either as bolt-on businesses, organic growth, or as completely separate businesses, (laughs) ranging from things like um, hotel amenity recycling, where you scrub topical impurities off of soap that has been previously used and recycle it. Um, that one it for, didn't pan out for a lot of reasons. Um, to How mattress. much did you spend on consulting to figure that one out? Uh, you know, pro bono. Okay. We, we've got access to some great pro bono services, great. just as, as Lisa great. was mentioning. Mm-hmm. So we haven't had to spend money on these things. But we do have a one of our funder uh, partner relationships is with Red F out of the Bay Area. Some of you may be familiar with them. They're, they're really big in the social enterprise space. So they when they started funding us three years ago, their number one objective was to help us build another business. And it's been three years now, and every portfolio meeting I have with them, so how are we doing on that new business? Well, we're not doing anything on the new business because it hasn't penciled out. You know, it's trying to be an entrepreneur within a nonprofit. We got enough to deal with on top of trying to take business risk. So Mm -hmm. it's a really dicey situation for us. We haven't found that next magical business. And it's frustrating to me as as previously in a previous life an entrepreneur, but I can't risk my boards and uh, my funders' money to take flyers on stuff that isn't going to pencil out and at the end of the day produce significant jobs for, for our organization. That's terrific. Thank you. That's a great story. Yes. To your So our our board board has um, a pretty diverse set of skills on it, and they're very involved in these type of – this is what turns them on. They get very excited about it because of the business aspect. Uh So I get lots of advice. Um, and some of the ideas are great and some are not so good, but we've, we've developed a, a decision matrix that we use that we filter on this particular topic that we filter business ideas through. And we've got a... Well, of course, that's not true. <laughs> it's got to start with the mission. If, if there's a connection between the social enterprise and your mission, great. For us, it's obvious because we're trying to get people to work, work you can charge for, wages. It comes together. 
Um, but where I've seen other folks struggle is we want to try to monetize something in our organization, yes, but we're not right, sure right. quite how to do that and how it connects to the mission. And you spend so much time focusing on developing the social in- enterprise, you lose focus of mm-hmm. the mission. Yeah. And then what's the point? And we develop also, Mark, social- what I'm hearing is that you've, your board is a strategy-oriented board. As opposed strategy, to something strategy and fundraising. That's, right. So that's I mean, that's what they're doing, and that's so they weren't recruited, for example, to solicit major gifts or to put on a gala. That's their their. Oh, no, they do that too. They do that too. <laughs> All right, Lisa. Sorry. Oh no, I was just going to add. I mean, I think we developed two social enterprises over the last three years, and it's a huge investment in money. So this idea that it's going to bring you a windfall of money and help to clear the bottom line, it's not. It. I mean, it's. It's, we've invested, I mean, luckily, like I said, our social network is strong, so we've been able to raise the dollars to support it, and it's a great and amazing program, but it, we still have, after three years, a few years before we're, I mean, we're breaking even now for the activity that we do within the enterprise, but to provide the program support that yeah. it's going to take, um, that's going to take a while. So it's not, a, it's definitely a long-term investment, so I tell the foundations, if you're looking to give, you have to give look for at least minimally three years to support mm-hmm. this. Yeah. And for boards, too, because if you're not invested in three to five years, then... Yeah, and sometimes even and then it still might fail. Yeah. Steve, you were going to tell us something. So for the Wellness Center, the, the idea was, was largely... I mean, there was... It was in, this idea was in search of a home to take root, and I think so. There was an acknowledgement by folks that this was this was really kind of in a startup mode and posture. And so, from very basic elements to of of where it's going to take root and what sort of organizational home will it find, you know, a small nonprofit uh, eventually was one of them. Um, there was there was the the acknowledgement that there was going to be a lot of building building this vehicle while we were driving it and trying to figure out how we can you know leverage some of the relationships of the folks the principals who are involved in in in, in uh, trying to make this idea uh, flourish to to trying to figure out how specifically are some of these organizations going to work out so for for I think the wellness center and the the LACUSC foundation which is its kind of parent nonprofit. Um, you know, the, the board members were really engaged in some of the very basic aspects of trying to get, you know, funding and, and, and budgets thought through, you know, partnerships and getting community, community, uh, uh, um, the community involved to, you know, hiring decisions, you know, so very involved. And, and I think, you know, now as, as the, uh, the opening has, the grand opening has happened, I think there's going to be, you know, we're going to start seeing how some of these things are taking root and flourishing or not, and whether adjustments need to be made, partially in, because there's not a, you know, probably for a lot of things, there's not a very, you know, a, an established model for doing this type of project. And so, so it takes a lot of talking to, to and getting input yeah. from a lot of folks. Great. Thanks, Beatrice. Let me ask you a question. I know you. I have to say something, too, but I also want to ask you, which is, so you must see a lot of people saying to you, I have a proposal for a social enterprise that's related to health. So when you see all those proposals, what are the some things that you look for, and what are some of the red flags? Um, so let's just stick with the wellness idea. Great. I mean, okay. uh, you know, Mark Ridley, Tom, I mean, we have five, you know, four other supervisors. And so the idea of going into this one was really how do we use this as a test model to then go to scale? And so, you know, I think in the back of our mind is, okay, what is it about the uniqueness of this project, but what is potentially 
scalable or that other organizations that across the country, across the state that want to take it up, that there's kind of going in with their eyes wide mm-hmm. open. So I think as a funder, we sort of look through that lens mm-hmm. of where is the yeah. possibility. And everybody, you know, at the federal government level, at the state <laughs> level, they're all like, oh, my God, what are we going to do to reduce costs for health care, right? And, and so it sort of fit the narrative, right? It just mm-hmm. fit the narrative of where folks are at. And um, leveraging, I mean, I think for any funder, even if they're a private investor, if it's programmatic related investment that you're getting from foundations or a mix of individual mm-hmm. donors, they, everybody's looking for how do you leverage um, support. And so for us, having the leadership of the supervisor kind of put her cachet out there and resources was a really big leverage yeah. because what we didn't mention is that you have nonprofits there, but we also got the Department of Mental Health right. in there. <laughs> which was tough. And I could say that he won't. Um, And the public health department, you know, that came in um, to really go at the ground level, which was fabulous. And then what happened in county government, which is so massive, right? And so many silos and departments, they were like, hmm, maybe we need to Maybe we need to go there. So that helps with the business model as well, in the sense that I hope government works better for people who need the resources that really need the resources, Uh right? So it's getting it out of, so if we think about mental health, it's not just in a clinic, but you're Uh going to a space where other services are provided. So the stigmatization around that hopefully will be pushed aside so that people are actually getting the relevant resources that they need. But there are many challenges with the work. And as the work goes forward, you know, funding, it's an old building, you know, remediation, it's just the first floor, there's 18 more floors, the 19th is supposed to be haunted, I don't know. Uh, So we have, yeah, so, 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 you know, again, imagination, um, with what could happen in, in on the other floors is is yet right. To be that's realized. interesting way to think about it. Right. It's it, I was thinking we're at the beginning of this project, but now I'm realizing we really. Or I thought I was thinking we're at the beginning of a project by like this, but it's more like a project like that. Thanks for that. Um, so you know, I have to also say you know it's very the combination of the endowment and supervisor Molina. It's pretty hard for people to say no to that combination. I would say that. So and that's kind of an example of having the right leadership, I think, on board. So I'm going to ask people to come up to this microphone to ask questions. I'm going to take some questions now. So if you can come up. And then uh, and say who you are um, and your question. It doesn't have to be a question. It can be a comment. But what it can't be is like a pitch for money. All right. Just disguise it. <laughs> okay. Hello. I'm Rigo Sabori. I'm with St. Barnabas in your services. And I was very curious about the model in terms of how you went about identifying the kind of community-based organizations that should go into that building and what process and criteria was used in mm-hmm. that selection. Oh, my God. that That's really tough. Um, so we had to negotiate, essentially, TCE mm-hmm. and supervisor's office and, and having many deliberate conversations and negotiations about – because, you know, in essence, we kind of have different ways of thinking of things, and we have some areas of commonality. But how do we – how do we be transparent about the process? And so, which meant we came up with an application, you know, again, all that process stuff that happened. So it was a very process-laden um, activity. 
Um, and I think at the end of the day, folks felt like we understand the decisions that you've made, even though not everybody got in, um, but there was an understanding of, okay, this is what makes sense um, in terms of the yeah, process. So I would say, you know, we, we, yeah. we did that. Like, you know, from, from you know, born to old age mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. is used well, as a Well, it's, uh, I would say, um, you know, how I, I mentioned we did a community participatory process where community actually talked about how they wanted to see things, um, what kind of services they wanted. So we kind of used that as our validation check. It's like, this is what they told us. Mm -hmm. And are we matching what that need is? Um, and then knowing what we do know about the field, just from the supervisor's, you know, long history of, of, of supporting the community, and then our perspective, we sort of looked at where's a, where, where can we go and um, make sure that we create space of thinking forward, right? Because, you know, you know what you know what you need now, but you're always not sure of what you need looking forward. So, you know, how can we have a little bit more space for what we don't know? And what has been really cool is some what we didn't know is actually happening, which is super exciting. Two young Latinas that graduated from college, um, yoga instructors because they really like yoga, um, hooked up with one of the nonprofits, said, you know what, you guys have a little bit of space here. Can we give free yoga classes? And then, you know, but we give, you know, we charge for yoga in this site. And so an agreement was made. So I think there's like spinoffs that I don't even think we fully captured that are that are happening in that space that are quite exciting. So again, it doesn't come through an application. You know, it it is just sort of happening. Yeah, come up to the mic and just kind of uh, or have the mic brought to you, whichever one is going to work. Okay. Thank you, uh, Therese Steiner from Global Girl Media. Uh, thank you, California Endowment, for your support. Got to start off with that. We train girls from marginalized communities to be journalists and be empowered to have get their stories out. We have a distribution system, and it's on our website, and we're doing a YouTube channel, and it's, it's amazing. So my question is, one of the things that we're looking at is having a Global Girl Productions yeah. where Global Girls will be hired to report on events, go to events, you know, do stories, do webisode series. My question primarily is to Mark, but anyone can comment on this. How did you set up your sort of, you have a for-profit part of what you do and you're not for profit. How are those related and what, how did you set them up? What's the structure? So in, in our case, um, we don't generally use the word profit. Uh, we talk about margin. So we're, we're, we're all operating under uh, 501c3. Um, we don't have the separation between the for-profit and the nonprofit business units. Um, there's a lot of talk in the literature and in the field today about B Corps and LL3Cs and all that good stuff, and that's best left to lawyers to figure out. That's all the that's all the scaffolding that surrounds it. There's, you can absolutely run a social enterprise under a 501c3, assuming that it's related business income, and, mm -hmm. and your lawyers can help you with that. But I, I, yeah. to me, the rest of it is just window dressing and liability protection and all the rest of it, and there might be good reasons to separate it, but don't get too hung up on the structural stuff. Focus on the, yeah. the mission and the structure of your business first. 
Actually, you know, not everybody knows that the California Association of Nonprofits, where I work, we actually are a nonprofit. We have a wholly owned for-profit enterprise. And it was set up that, which is our insurance business that provides health insurance, for example, to about 14,000 nonprofit employees. But so, but one of the things is that was set up in 1985. And every lawyer we've talked to says, now, you didn't need to do that. You, if you were doing this now, you wouldn't have needed to do that. That was, you know, very specific. And there are a lot of, so I, again, I really think you're right. You know, you can do it either way, and you shouldn't get hung up on that. Um, so I appreciate your comment. I do, have, I do have board members who are lawyers who say, oh, my God, you are running a fleet of 18 vehicles doing street maintenance, right. pressure washing. Why uh-huh. is this not in its own separate corporate right. structure so that we won't bring the uh-huh. whole company down if something bad happens? So there's there's two sides to every story. The, the yeah, lawyers. Beaches? <laughs> no, I was just going to add there's a group up in the Bay Area. So Will I Am has his own foundation arm. So he's created what's called a Peapod, and it's essentially um, music and recording and low income communities. So they have a really successful one in Oakland. And in Oakland, what they're doing is that the kids that are learning the skills on recording. Um, are act- so they're creating a job pipeline. One, kids are now getting the skills to get a job in the recording industry. But there's so much talent in the community. It's just like, you know, musical talent. And so they're creating their own sort of um, recordings that they're selling. And then on top of that, they um, get highlighted and are connected with other artists. Um, so we're getting picked up on venues. So again, their angle and perspective is more on a youth development, you know, how do we help build talent and then career pipeline. So, but from there, they're also noodling and have been struggling for the last couple of years on a social enterprise. And I think they've made some more movement on it, but happy yeah. to connect you with that group. Great. Another question. Hi, Paul. Paul Park with the Cesar Chavez Foundation. Um, I, I'm a nonprofit lawyer, but my uh, question is not <laughs> we'll going to be. We'll let you talk little, anyway. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, my question's about um, in thinking uh, about establishing a, a new social enterprise. Have you uh, looked into mm-hmm. impact investors trying to attract private mm-hmm. private equity, or from uh, a funder's perspe- perspective on uh, PRIs? Uh, do you? Uh, invest in social enterprises and what's the criteria that you would use? Anybody? Uh, well, I can, I can tell you that from our standpoint, um, one of the biggest strengths we have from a fundraising standpoint is that we have these social enterprises. Not that we're asking for money for the social enterprises because they're more or less self-sustaining, but because those that are oriented to impact investing love our business models. And so they'll give unrestricted funds to do other things that we need done. So just the cachet of being in the space and and actually the business discipline that having to run those businesses forces us to have throughout the organization is something that's very attractive to a certain subset of donors, particularly those that have earned their money through investing and startups. That's kind of their mindset anyway, and so it, it meshes yeah. well when we're, when we're mm-hmm. making a pitch for support from yeah. them. Uh, but not necessarily equity support, but uh, yeah, we. Dollars. You know, it's interesting. I was at a conference three weeks ago with forty folks that do what I do: the workforce, large workforce development programs with social enterprises. And one of the sessions was on hybrid um, funding and investment strategies. And it was like navel-gazing. We were all looking at each other like, I don't understand this stuff. You would think we would. And one of the learnings out of that community was 
we need to get some help to better understand it because it's not it's not a tool that we've employed very well in this sector. Uh, well, I would also have to say there's a lot more talk about it than action. So there's not very many actions to learn from just yeah, at least not yet. But let me ask you, Lisa. So the, a lot of this talk, sometimes when you hear the term business model, people think social enterprise, but that doesn't necessarily right mean that. But so you don't use that language like social enterprise. You talk about charging people to volunteer, charging companies to have their volunteers. But in a way, that's a kind of earned related earned con- income. So how do you intentionally use or use other social enterprise type language and use other kinds of language? That's a good question. So I think it's, you know, I think it's really about looking at each one of your programs and developing those, like looking at the program line and what the opportunities there are in them. I mean, um, and, you know, and looking at the, because this traditional way of kind of, uh, or at least in the homeless services of government funds or, you know, all these different models are just kind of traditional fundraising is kind of going out the window right now. And so it's really about looking at um, each service that we provide and where is there an opportunity? Where is there a place to connect with people? Where is there a place to connect with businesses? It's really about figuring out that whole, you know, that same thing when you look at the grants, like what's in it for me, what's in it for them? Mm -hmm. And it's really about um, creating each one. And some of People are more interested in investing from the business sense, and they like our organization because they see it as a very transparent, effective uh, business that we're mm-hmm. running. And I'm so tired, and Mark and I talk about this all the time, of people saying, oh, well, you're not like other nonprofits. I mean, you guys operate like a real business. I'm like, when were nonprofits never That's a real right. business? <laughs> I mean, and, and that gets so frustrating. And so... Um, but really, I think it's what you said, too, is using the strategy. I think Mark's been lucky, too. We've both been lucky to have great strategists on our boards mm-hmm. and great fundraisers mm-hmm. and really focused in those two areas, which make a huge um, difference. Thanks. Um, I, let me tell one quick story that's kind of a little bit of a counterpoint. It's I'm on the board of a nonprofit organization, and I'm kind of new to it. But when they started several years ago, they were really started as a social enterprise, you know, with a lot of plans for earned income. And then about two years ago, the foundation world discovered them. And now there's like foundation money is just kind of like pouring in like a waterfall. And so they're kind of saying, well, we had the wrong business model, right? The right business model for us was actually foundation. So I just want to remind us, right, that with being the right business model is a lot of different point ways to go. There was, yes, question here. Can you come and stand up at the mic so everyone can hear you? And then you'll be next. Okay, so come stand up here. Hi, I'm Suzanne Elliott. I'm, I'm now a consultant to nonprofit organizations. Used to be in a nonprofit. Um, a lot of the organizations I work with are, are interested in new business models, particularly social enterprise. Um, and a number of them have very good ideas that, you know, I think over the long term have great potential. The challenge that most of them face is the startup phase. You know, as you all said, it takes years often to become mm-hmm. profitable when you open any business. How do you have any suggestions for getting that seed money that you need up front mm-hmm. to sustain those first few years to, to prove the concept? Mm-hmm. Well, Thanks for the question. For me, I think it's like we can no longer look at year to year budget. Like we go for a five year budgeting plan, right? So when you're sharing, when you know what your five year view is and what you want to do over the next five years, when you're presenting that to a foundation or a funder of any kind, it's much easier for them to kind of buy into what you want to do. So it's really looking at, you know, from the budget, what it is you desire, 
How much does it cost? And then how do you make that message clear so that people can really resonate? Because what for us, when we were going to growth, we had these major donors that I talk about, but and their names are on, you know, the Disney Hall or the Music Center. But they felt like giving us a couple hundred dollars a year was great because that, you know, that fed the people that came in and that's all mm-hmm. they gave. So by giving them an opportunity to really say, like, this is what we want to accomplish, this is our five-year plan, giving them, you know, very clear, transparent, um, trans- clear, transparent financials, really. I mean, that's what they were mm-hmm. mostly interested in, um, and how they can go about the method. That was the most effective way. Right. I think part of the, part of the um, for the Wellness Center and the LACUSC Foundation, I think part of the challenge was we had an organization, nonprofit organization, that had was really focused on and their their annual budget was pretty small and there was not a lot of history to to woo funders aside from the idea which i think a lot there was significant interest in the idea itself and and the promise and and some of the partnerships that had been established and and so i think and some of some funders chose well let's see how that works out you know after you know you get going and get on your feet and other funders uh, other folks were sufficiently interested in the idea to fund some of the initial operational support to get that ball rolling, was it as large as it could have been or we would have liked, I think, maybe not, um, but it was enough to now allow, in conjunction with some of the, the, the supervisors funding and the County of L.A. funding for the renovations itself to allow you know, the, the site to open, to, to hire some crucial and critical staff and to, to uh, start building that structure in a faster pace that is now, I think, as we move a little more forward, I think some of those, those funders who have been watching on the sidelines, I think, uh, with very keen interest are going to, you know, say, okay, let's look at how you're doing and what your plans are, I think, down the line. That's great. Thanks. Another question. Come on up here. Yeah, you. My name is Betty Nordwin, and I'm the director of the Harry Puhai Center uh, for Family Law, another public interest lawyer. Um, we actually, this question's sort of, as they say, been asked and answered, but this is why I came, so, and this is a good audience to be asking the question. So we have a product, um, and we've been sort of self-marketing it. It's generating about forty or 50000 a year. It's a book. Um, and it's very, very clear to me it's the only one in the state on family law at a very basic level. It's, um, uh, so I have thought I've had a lot of help from various entities. We've done a brochure. We changed the name of our book. We've kind of done, but this is all in-house self, and I, I, I feel like the next step is to either go bank, business plan, or some kind of proposal to foundation. How much money are you looking for? Oh, I think this book in in its various configurations broken down into chapters. Right. We're on right. I mean, what are you talking about? So we just I think this could generate five hundred. I think it could generate half a million. Okay, but how much money are you looking for? Just so we have a sense of you're trying to find out. That's the question that oh, I don't. I, see, I, I think that bringing in someone okay. who has the marketing, okay. the business experience, and perhaps the expertise in books. Okay. Um, and, you know, is is the person we need, and I'm not quite sure 
Mm-hmm. I, I, I've also heard just a lot of talk, and I just haven't seen no one. No one here has said, "Well, this bank funds social enterprise activities." I've not heard anyone say that, and I've not heard. Um, you so know. let's hear what our panelists have to say. It's a great question. Mark, how about so, you? Huh? So no bank will fund social enterprise activities. So yeah. let's answer that one. That that won't happen. So in my experience, that won't happen either. I, kind of tagging back to the previous question that's related to this one, one of the coolest ideas I saw recently that I think I'm going to steal from another agency is they – to pitch their idea for a new business, they put together a investor's prospectus. If you're trying to get money for a business, think of it as if you're pre- presenting to venture capitalists. What do they want to see? Well, they look for information in a particular way, in a particular format, using certain terminology. And so what she had done with her nonprofit and their, their business concept is package it on paper and in a PowerPoint and all that good stuff in a way that investors would relate to it, just right. like any other investment, except she wasn't looking for equity money. She was looking for cash up front, unrestricted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think part of the game in this space is being able to talk the language of the investors right. that you're going to. And we don't typically do that in the nonprofit space. We have our own language. And uh-huh. the foundations that we work with, the funders we work with, uh-huh. they get it. We, we share that common language. When we start branching out and you want to get into publishing, then you better really be able to speak the language of publishing and whatever their buzzwords are and whatever their metrics are and all that good stuff. Uh, so it may be hiring a consultant that can help you craft that that pitch in a way that would resonate with the kind of investors that would want to invest in a publishing asset, for example. Okay, so we've, I like the idea that we've sort of morphed into a business consulting panel here. <laughs> going to do a fast pitch afterwards. Everybody gets three yeah, minutes. Yeah, so it's like it's kind of like fast pitch. Yeah. yeah. All right. Another question. Uh huh. Is you have to be clear to your mission also, and how connected is it to your mission? Yeah. That's what I would ask. Is like, is your book driving your mission? Because when you think about when you ask the question of mistakes, the only mistakes we. Not, probably there's others, but the only mistakes that I really remember making is when I wasn't connected to our mission, when we decided to move forward on something that was fund-driven and not mission-driven. So it's, I think that's key. But we'll just t- t- tell us a couple, a little bit more about that. So how did the idea come up, and how did what kind of process did you go through to decide ultimately not to do it? I mean, how did you make that thinking journey? Well, we, you know, dealing with homelessness, we have a lot of people coming in with different abuse situations. And so this was funding that was coming for um, sex trafficking. And so we thought, you know, obviously we have people coming in off the bus. We had a couple people who were part of the industry come in. So we're like, okay, so the county, I think was, it was the county dollars we're giving out to build these collaborations. And we thought we should be part of this collaboration. But when we became part of the collaboration, we realized, we have really no idea where these people, where to find them. And all of a sudden, where we're using our outreach worker was supposed to coordinate with these other organizations. And we realized that we had no expertise whatsoever. And why did we possibly go after this money? Like, there are already people in this field doing the work. <sighs> and what we really needed was to partner with them for the few people that we really had coming in that uh-huh. needed that service. That's interesting. So okay. that's just one example that I can think Great. of. Great. Thanks for that. Yes, your question? <laughs> So we've been talking about leadership. We've been talking about change. I heard you say fundraising, Lisa, is changing. Um, what made you decide to shift your focus, move towards social enterprises, and what did you need to do with your leadership team to make that successful? Both of you, uh, Mark and Lisa. Um, well, 
three of my senior staff have MBAs, including myself. So we all have an entrepreneur spirit. So obviously there was an interest there. Um, but the shift really was, for us, it was more about a community engagement again. The social enterprises really started um, on how do um, I received a Staten Fellowship um, from the Durfee Foundation. And it was really about solving the intractable problem of how to build. We have gentrification occurring downtown. And while our individuals are losing their housing, can we create jobs that will um, match the community members that are moving in? Can we create a service so that at least we can employ people from the community to, to provide that service to the new people moving in? So it really, for us, it goes back to that social network. So it really was about developing a social enterprise where kind of the new people moving in would have an opportunity to get to know the homeless individuals at a different level through our stores, and it would really go against the us against them. And we were trying to get rid of, um, build that community and connection. And then the products that we sell um, that the women make, we sell them like in Bloomingdale's and Hudson News and all these different locations. And the products were really about work, make, working with local artists in our community because we're in the arts district or near the arts district of how to bring in that community to work with our women. So it really was still around. It's always been about building community on all different levels. And so the business models are really based, everything we do is really based out of how do we build that communities to support it. Mm-hmm. Great, thanks. Um, yeah, okay. I have to say that oh. I showered with DWC show, soap this morning, <laughs> and I smell lovely. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. So we, I, I'd say the change that's happened in the seven years that I've been, we've been doing the businesses for a long time, but I think the the change is we serve 3,500 clients a year, 500 of them work in a social enterprises. So when you think about it in terms of client impact, it's a really small part of our agency, but it's a huge part of our revenue base and it's a huge part of our storytelling right. because we can leverage that story in a fundraising and a community engagement standpoint. So the change I think has been my team and I deciding how do we tell that story in a way that's compelling and allows us to leverage this other asset to raise money to support the bulk of our program that isn't supported by earned revenue. Mark, I, re- I really appreciate that point because it's not sort of when people think social enterprise, like it's just sort of this little machine that throws off money. And you're saying kind of if you think about it as you're part of your whole story, it can be really different. And I actually I know a, ba- a nonprofit bakery in the Bay Area um, that lost money like crazy. But foundations love the bakery so much they gave them a ton of money. And so uh, uh, so I just think, you know, this, it's more complicated, right? And so it was still a good idea, but um, – so I appreciate the fact that you're talking about leveraging different parts of your organization against each other, not just leveraging things kind of separately. They're not selling pot brownies or anything, are they? <laughs> They're with Those certain... brownies were awfully good now that I think about it. Okay. All right. So there was a question here from somebody. Here. Come on. Are oh, you trying to wrap this up? So I'll try to make this a quick one. I'm Katie Browdy. I'm with Abriendo Puertas Opening Doors, and we're we're a parent leadership training organization here in Los Angeles. The question is really, and it's been touched on already, so you may not need to go into this as much as when I first came to me, but as you're developing these ideas and you're going out for that initial funding, so you're at the early stages, um, and your funders think, well, it's a good idea, but wouldn't it be better if you did this? Or if you, you know, we'd fund you if you did it this way. How do you 
and I know it's about staying true to your mission. I know that's going to be part of the answer. But you can say that, and you're still struggling with it because you want that money, and you're starting to think, well, we could just tweak it a little bit. And I'd love to hear about some of your experiences uh, yeah. with What's those the difference situations? between going off mission and expanding your mission? Well, just from a funder perspective, I think – you know, what funders would say is, you know, you got to understand one funder is one funder uh-huh. and foundations are so different. I mean, we're a different animal, you know, um, community foundation, Liberty Hill, I mean, we're all really, really different. And so, and I know nothing new. It's like really kind of understanding where, where it is that the, you know, funding wants to go. And I, I would also say, you know, there was a question um, from Cesar um, Foundation, Cesar Chavez Foundation, around other aspects of money and asks. And so with mission-related investing and PRI funding, um, impact investing, there is a lot of interest in that area. But just as it was pointed out, there's um, not a lot of – I mean, I'll talk about TCE. We don't have a lot – we don't have deep bench strength. But we're learning and keeping and trying. Huh. You know, we put out $45 million for social innovation, right, because we were getting all those pressures. And then we went to a group, two groups that said, okay, we know how to do it. They weren't able to come up with deals. So it's like, how do you, because, and then they would work with nonprofits to say, okay, well, you know, a nonprofit has an idea, they want to do this. So then they'd go deep and try to help figure, and then the idea wasn't really fleshed out. So I think... You know, it's kind of, it's a hard learning space right now for foundations. Huh. I think that they're putting in, you know, if you look at the Rockefellers or the Fords, you know, they've been doing PRIs for a long time, but they have very laser focus. And so for us, we're like, what do we learn from that? But how do we blow it up? You know, where do we take chances? Because PRIs are ability to take a chance where the payback may be five years, 10 years, and an interest rate that may be zero to 3%, which yeah. is a great deal. But at some point, you got to pay it back, potentially. PRI sometimes can also be forgived. Um, but, you know, it's again, Such a great point. you know, how do you partner with maybe, you know, a local business school, you know, like if I think about the Luskin School of Public Policy, there's a lot of you know, great ideas and supports that you can get from local universities to help flesh out some of the initial ideas. Thanks. Other comments on this topic? Well, I think you just have to be willing to say no, too, cause, and push back to funders. Because I know when um, Clear, I think she won't mind me sharing this with the Derby Foundation, when we decided to do the social enterprise, um, and when I was doing my sentence, she kept giving me every reason why I shouldn't, and everyone that's failed. And Chrysalis is only the, the only success model. So and repeated how often who's funded what and how they've failed each time. <laughs> so I was like, okay, great, but that's what we're going to move forward. And then we had another foundation that came in and said, we'll give you a large sum of money if you do this type of service and um, give um, provide this service, and that's how you employ your people. And we're like, but our women, we've done feasibility studies, and we know what they're interested in, and that is not it. So it's great that you'll give us this large pot of money to do this social enterprise, but that's not our need. So I think it's having those honest, and it took, and honestly, we kept saying, well, we just started our employment program in January, and 
Um, we've put 15 people back to work in the last couple months. And these are chronically homeless women who have been homeless at minimally 10 years yeah. on the streets. And so putting 15, um, or not minimum, on the average 15, I mean 10 years on the streets. So putting 15 women back um, into the workforce in this short yeah. of time is a real success to us. But for some of our funders, they're like, oh, those numbers are way too low. Like, we, there's no way we can support you. Well, okay, but then we have to find a foundation that's more aligned with our mission and understands what we're doing, or we have to educate them better so that they can be more aligned. Thanks. Um, so I'm going to ask, since it's Friday afternoon, I'm going to ask each one of our panelists to maybe give us a reflection or a thought or a meditation or something like that for us to take into this weekend on this topic. And then I want to give uh, Regina a chance to kind of have the last word here. Okay, so um, can we start with you, Beatrice, and go this way? What's kind of a thought uh, for us to take into the weekend about all this? Mm. Uh, goodness gracious. Um, I would say uh, be open to unlikely partners uh. and be patient about it because sometimes you will be surprised and amazed by situations that you didn't anticipate. Um so I think a, a willingness and an openness to think, to, 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 to be humble enough to say, you know, I don't know everything. Yeah. But maybe if we get enough group of people around together, maybe something magical can happen. Great. Thank you. That's great. I think, I think just a little bit along those lines is when, like the Wellness Center and the, the foundation, there was an effort to try and figure out how we're going to build something, I, th I think finding those folks and relationships and, and, and exploring them um, can help think through some difficult ideas and diff difficult challenges. And so it's, you know, it doesn't need a consultant all the time to be hired to be brought in to, to, to write the whole business plan or anything like that. Because I think a lot of that is, is going to take real difficult work, thinking, brainstorming, and um, uh, I think there's just opportunity to, I mean, there's so much expertise in, in um, this panel here, present self-exclude, but then also in the room, and so when, when you start to explore those types of uh, um, uh, relationships, I think, huh. roots are, are Thanks. there. Thanks. I'm Mark, how about you? Uh, my bias is always about the mission and staying focused on the mission and making sure that the business plan for the organization is well aligned. Um, but in helping me do that, one thing, I'm relatively new to the nonprofit space, and one thing that I've learned, particularly in the last couple of years as we've done some growth and expansion and strategic planning work, is the people that actually do the work at the front lines are the subject matter experts. They're really, really smart about the work that we need to do, how we need to do it, and what works best. They're a lot smarter than I am at it, or my senior leadership team for that matter. So I've had to become um, a better listener than I was and being able to take that feedback and put it through the appropriate prism mm. that will allow us to take that forward. But that's always a great source of information, and I always have to remind myself not to forget it. Thanks. Lisa? I think it goes back to something you said, that there's no one magic bullet, that this is really tough work, and that um, finding solutions, I mean, we... These are, most of us are dealing with the most, most intractable problems in our city, the biggest social ills. And so, I mean, we're called upon at so much, um, to have so much degrees of expertise yeah. um, that not one, no one person should or can have that all. But I think what really drives me is always 
um, knowing what our women want and what their needs are and listening to those voices, whether it be listening to them directly, listening to the staff and what they're saying, and then be daring enough to just be like, well, this is what we, this is what we need. I mean, this is what we want. This is what we need. It may not, you may be a partner with us. You may not, but I'm clear that we're going to run the best programs directly from what our participants want. And um, hopefully others can join. And it's just, I think taking a risk, like when we said we were going to do a $35 million capital campaign five years ago to build our new building, I had no idea and how the hell we were going to do that. And I don't even still know how we convinced the board to do that. <laughs> you know, but I knew that we had drastically increased the amount of homeless people in our community and that there was a huge need. So. Well, you know, well, that reminds me partly, we've been talking about sort of the business side, money and connections and plans, and, and that as a result of the work that you're doing, there are going to be more people that are healthy, there are going to be more people that are housed, there are going to be more people that have jobs. And uh, and so that's kind of a great note to close on, right? That that's kind of what is really all this machination and stuff is really all about in the end. So, Regine, let's, um, why don't you wrap this up for us? Well, Take I was using Regine that I didn't because what I wanted to share with you guys is that we asked, who should we talk to about this? And these guys were the rock stars. And one of the things that the rock stars. Um, we asked yeah. the market, who do we want to learn from? These examples came up. But one of the things that struck me was that they knew the problem they were trying to solve. And we all get bombarded with everybody's ideas about how we ought to do it, and what should work for us, and what we're doing wrong. And what these guys managed to do is in the midst of all of that, stay true to the problem they were trying to solve. And then they figured out how to get there. They also gave themselves some time to figure it out. And what I was hoping, to your point, Jan, is yeah. that we could end Friday knowing that there's no wrong or right answers. One side won't at all. But if you know what you're trying to accomplish, when we talk a lot about what's the problem you're trying to solve, you're on the right path. So with that, thank you very much for being willing to share with us. Thanks, you guys. Thank you.